When we have a proper interpretation, we see Christ as the central storyline of the Bible, we have that hope that Jesus came to die for the sins of his one people, to be raised, to ascend, and to rule and to reign. And the New Testament helps us see that the types and the shadows of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by focusing on Christ and by listening to Him, even as the Father has commanded us, we can understand the Old Testament better. And by understanding the Old Testament, we can understand what happens at the end of the world better. Such as Elijah has already come. We're already in the last days. The kingdom is already here. Christ is ruling and reigning. Victory has already been secured. That's the gospel. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to take them and be turning again to the Gospel of Mark, if you haven't already, Mark chapter 9. And this morning, uh, the message that I want to give you is a message that comes from the conclusion of the disciples' experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, as we look together at verses 9 through 13 of Mark chapter 9, I've entitled the message, As It Is Written of Him. And I want you to stand as I read the Word of God, just verses 9 through 13. Then we'll pray, asking for the Lord's help as we study His Word together. The Bible says, And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Let us ask for his help. Our Father, we come before this sacred text, Lord, asking that you would give to us enlightenment that can only come from the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would not just be instructed in truth, but that we would be convicted in our souls. We pray that your word would not just fill our minds, but that it would fill our souls and change us. Make us more like Christ. Lord, help us to see all that he is to us, all that he came to do for us in suffering and dying, raising in glory, help this to be a reminder to us of, Lord, the fact that we are in union with him as he died upon the cross, so we died. If we are in Christ and as he was raised, we were raised with him. Lord, help us even during this, what we typically call Easter season, to be reminded of the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. Lord, um, It is the hinge upon which, 
Lord, our whole belief system turns. We must embrace a suffering Savior. So help us to see that and to believe that this morning. We pray and ask these things with your guidance and help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the verses that I just read to you, Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, reveal to us what happens as Jesus and the the three witnesses to the transfiguration, uh, Peter, James, and John, what happened as they left that mountain? We won't go into detail this morning to chronicle all that went on on that mountain, all that they experienced, but to sum it up, the transfiguration was a bright mountaintop experience. But now as they enter the dark valley of confusion and they descend physically, they are beginning to grapple spiritually with what they just saw. Of course, they had exposed to them the fact that Jesus was the Son of God as that light shone upon him, his garments glimmering and shining, the whitest white that you can imagine. They had uh, perhaps two of the greatest Old Testament figures as reliable witnesses to the sonship of Jesus Christ, to the deity of Jesus Christ, confirming that he was the Son of God, confirming that he was deity, confirming, as Luke 9.31 says, that he must go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and suffer and die. On that mountain, what they witnessed seemed so obvious and urgent, they were caught up in that experience. But as they descend down the mountain, they come back to reality. And their old ideas of what they think Jesus' mission should be begins to creep up again. Too heavily influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees, this inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John, had believed too much what the scribes had taught. And so in spite of what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're falling back into their old ways and their old theology and the influence of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Messiah, they said, would bring salvation to the Jewish people by crushing their enemies and setting up an earthly kingdom. Defeating all Gentile enemies was really a triumphalist sort of theology that, quite frankly, did not take into account that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Remember Jesus' words to Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But the thought of Jesus dying, going to Jerusalem, which was the topic of discussion on the Mount of Transfiguration, was still being resisted to a degree by the apostles. It reveals to us their humanness, doesn't it? It reveals to us their doubts in Jesus. Such, I think, is not unlike hearing a sermon and being on the mountaintop with Jesus. In the midst of what is being said in a sermon, it seems so obvious, so urgent. But once you get in your car and you go home, reality and the superficial things of life begin to creep in, even as you discuss what it is that you're going to have for lunch. And before you know it, that mountaintop experience of God's glory and the study of his word becomes past news. It becomes too much to think about, too hard to grapple with in your own soul. And before you know it, you are justifying your old ways of living and your old ways of believing. 
That's something like what is happening here with the apostles as they come down from that mountain. Jesus still needs to adjust their thinking, but I want to say this, they are now more than ever ready to listen. After all, they had seen the preview of the coming glory of Christ's resurrection and his ascension symbolized in the transfiguration that could not be forgotten, but they needed some time for all of that to sink in. They knew this had worldwide ramifications, but they didn't understand the timeline of events. They didn't understand the glory of the resurrection, the glory of the ascension, could only be glorious if Christ suffered and they didn't want him to suffer. Not only that, but they had an idea of a very literal kingdom that would be set up upon his resurrection. That kingdom would not be set up literally upon his resurrection. Upon Jesus' ascension, as he went to the right hand of the Father, he would rule and he would reign from heaven. It would not be until the consummated kingdom that the full glory of his kingdom would come to fruition. And until then, the disciples would suffer like their Lord. Remember, even Acts 14.22 says that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God. You remember the parables of Jesus that the kingdom of God grows as a mustard seed. It's like leaven that permeates until the fullness of it rises. The disciples need time for these theological concepts to be absorbed into their thinking. And this is not just thinking for those in seminary, this is not just thinking for theologians. Because if they cannot grasp the significance of Jesus' crucifixion, they can have no part of his kingdom. There is no glory of a resurrection apart from a crucifixion. There is no salvation apart from damnation and wrath and fury that is poured out from the Father upon the Son. And so in verses 9 through 13, Jesus helps the disciples understand both the nature of his mission to atone for the sins of the world, as well as the order of kingdom events. Now, one of the favorite topics of many students of the Bible is the study of end-time events. It's what we refer to as eschatology. And we usually associate uh, eschatology with future events, with the eschaton, with the end of all things. Events yet to be experienced in the world. But in this passage, Jesus indicates in in perhaps a stunning way that the end times came when he died for sins. In fact, there's proof of this in the book of Hebrews. When the opening verses reveal to us that in many times and in many ways in times past God spoke to the prophets, but in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son. The last days began with the first century. The last days began with the incarnation of Jesus. The last days began with the death and resurrection of Christ. Your eschatology cannot be biblical apart from understanding that we are already in the last times and we have been in the last times. We are in the last days. Things have been fulfilled. Things are being fulfilled. And yes, there are still things to be fulfilled, but often what we think still needs to be fulfilled has already been fulfilled. And that's exactly what Jesus reveals to the apostles. Now, if that's puzzling to you, don't worry about that because the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, were also confused about their own eschatology. They struggled with what it meant that Jesus would raise from the dead. 
But as the end of the passage concludes, if you notice with me in verse 13, it has this phrase, it says, as it is written of him. Or if you like, in verse 12, and how is it written of the Son of Man? All of these things that Jesus reveals to the apostles in verses 9 through 13 were things already written. Things already written in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely the prophecies, but also the prophets and even events that occurred in the lives of the prophets. And so drawing on Old Testament concepts and and verses from their Old Testament Bible, Jesus speaks in these verses about what was written of him. And these prophecies provide clarity to his mission and his purpose. They reveal the nature of his kingdom. They reveal the necessity of his crucifixion and his resurrection. These prophecies help us too. They not only sharpen the thinking of the apostles, but they sharpen our thinking and they give us resolve to trust in Christ and to follow him. And so as we look at verses 9 through 13, I just want to point out five sharpening observations as we study God's word together, related to the mission and purpose of Christ, related to eschatology, related to prophecy, related to God's will for your life and how you are to view the gospel, how you are to view the kingdom of God, five sharpening observations. And the first one is found in verse 9, where we see simply what I want to call the quiet insisted. The quiet insisted. The beginning of verse 9 tells us, notice your Bibles, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Now, this is somewhat interesting. Jesus' command for them not to mention what they had seen uh, probably was not something they were expecting him to tell them. After all, they had had revealed to them that he was the Son of God, something they had already confessed. At least Peter had confessed that as the representative of the twelve. Not only that, but they had revealed to him that he was to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. They had that confirmed by two Old Testament witnesses, Elijah and Moses. And it wasn't just in what they saw in the bright light, it's in what they heard. The voice from the Father, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. If he says he must suffer, he must suffer. You better believe him, you better listen to him. But Jesus tells them not to tell anybody. Now, Matthew 17, 7 says that after they fell face down to the ground out of fear on that mountain, that Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. A picture of the gentleness of our Lord. He was a man's man, but a man's man knows how to gently deal with people. And that was Jesus, removing their fear, comforting them, touching them, telling them not to be afraid. But apparently as they came down that mountain and that deep fear began to subside, Jesus senses that they are ready to tell the whole world what they saw. I mean, who would not want to tell the whole world what they had witnessed? So he commands them not to say anything. Now, in a sense, they were more empowered than ever and more qualified than ever because of their confidence in Jesus' identity to to probably explain to people what they saw in an orthodox way. But here's the point. Such 
knowledge could be dangerous, especially if they were tempted to leave out the suffering of Jesus as they told others about the glory of Jesus. And that is the, why, the reason why he insists that they be quiet. In fact, verse 3 says he charged them, I'm sorry, not verse 3, verse 9, charged them to tell no one what they had seen. He, he had done this before, telling others not to tell who he was. This is the last time that he will require such silence because the cross is near and because the cross is near, the resurrection is near. And he uses the resurrection as the time frame after which they can tell others. Notice the end of verse 9. They aren't to tell anyone, this is very key, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, so once I'm raised from the dead, you are free to tell anybody what you have seen. You are free to tell everybody. Indeed, it'll be your duty to tell everyone of the glory of the Son of Man that you have seen. But not until the Son is raised. Any proclamation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the Messiah before His resurrection could result in a less than orthodox gospel since the central truth of the gospel includes the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we're going to see even in this passage, they're still struggling with the fact that He must suffer and die. They're not qualified yet. They need to trust Jesus, that yes, he will raise again from the dead, but they are not ready to speak of his glory until that time. And perhaps on a side note, I think we can apply Jesus' charge to the inner circle, to the importance of qualified men serving as pastor teachers and elders in the church. You know, scripture is clear that there are qualifications, there is a vetting process, that is to take place. First Timothy 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. First Timothy 3.2 says that an elder must be able to teach. Titus 1.9 says that elders must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You see, the apostles were not ready to serve fully in their office as apostles to teach the church because they did not fully grasp the necessity of the crucifixion and this is a good lesson for us just because someone served as an elder in one church doesn't mean they're qualified to serve as an elder in every church there are many factors such as the level of spiritual maturity. For example, if a congregation is less mature and less theologically mature, then the elders don't have to be as strong in their theology and as mature in their theology. But a strong congregation requires the strongest of elders, the strongest of preaching, the strongest of pastor-teachers. In fact, more people means a, a higher standard in vetting men to serve in the office of elder. Smaller churches struggle in even finding qualified candidates because there's a smaller pool of people to draw from. And what I'm saying can also be applied to teaching Sunday school or leading in any way where someone's teaching the Word of God because you don't want anyone teaching who's going to cause confusion or disseminate error. And that's really how Jesus is dealing with the apostles here. He knows the 12 need more training. There's still more learning that they need to be under 
So he charges even the inner circle of Peter, James, and John who witnessed the transfiguration to be quiet about the glory that they saw. The training wheels are not off yet. They are not ready to go into the world and to speak about this because an orthodox definition of the gospel will demand a suffering Savior. And they are resisting that at this point. You know, I've learned throughout the years the hard way. There are times that as a pastor teacher, I must not only be dogmatic, but I must be bulldogmatic about certain things. And there are other things that, quite frankly, I should not only not be bulldogmatic about, but I shouldn't even be dogmatic about. Scripture is not clear about every single thing in life. And such does not reveal um, ignorance, but I think it reveals humility. When we understand that we have learning to do, all of us have learning to do and growth to do, and only the most qualified of people must stand in the pulpit. Only the most qualified of men must be pastor teachers. Only the most qualified of men should serve as elders. And that may look different from one congregation to another, but essentially what we're doing as a church is exactly what Jesus did with the apostles. There was a strong vetting process. There was much learning they needed to do because if you are a preacher or a teacher or an elder or a Sunday school teacher or even a deacon, you have others underneath you that you are influencing. And so there is training that needs to take place. And so... They needed more training. And we see that in in what happens in verse 10. We move from the quiet insisted now to the qualms indicated. Verse 10. There were some inward qualms or reservations in the hearts of the apostles. And that comes out in verse 10. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They had some reservations in their hearts about what this resurrection, what's so significant about this resurrection, what's so necessary about the suffering of Christ. But first notice that they were obedient to Jesus and not telling a soul what they saw. Notice verse 10 says, so they kept the matter to themselves. Now the Greek word translated kept is rendered in other versions as seized. To, to give us the idea that they, they seized or kept God's word as a mark of true obedience. It's from the Greek word krateo. It means to take into one's possession, to hold on to. And I love how Mark reveals to us that the disciples' obedience was successful because they took Jesus' word in tightly to themselves. They kept their word to Jesus by keeping the word and the charge that he gave to them. That reminds me of Psalm 119 in verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And that's why I say this is a turning point for the disciples. They oftentimes are filled with pride, aren't they? But here, there's humility. And I think that humility is perhaps the greatest indicator of spiritual growth and theological maturity. And not only do they have humility, but they have loyalty and integrity, which I think are the twin characteristics of good leaders. They prove they have the potential to later teach and to preach about the glory of Christ, understanding what all of that means with the crucifixion and resurrection because of their quiet and humble obedience here. They kept the matter to themselves. 
They're not trying to outsmart Jesus. They're not trying to outflank Jesus. There is no indication here that Peter tries to rebuke Jesus again. No, they trust that he knows best. And this morning, I want to say to all of our children that are here today, that if you want to grow spiritually, the number one thing you can do is to obey your parents without questioning their authority. When I was little, we used to sing an old hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I think that song is about trusting and obeying Jesus because when you obey your parents, you are obeying Jesus because Jesus said, honor your father and your mother. And this is not because parents always know best. Those of us who are parents understand that, that maybe we don't always know best, but at least we think we know best. And the point is that a child's young mind and a child's young soul is not fully mature enough to talk back and to try to outflink or outthink one's parents. So children are to trust and obey. And I would say that to anyone in the church, that you have a responsibility to trust and obey the leadership of the church. What is true about parents is also true about the leadership of a church. Leaders don't always know the best and do the best. But at least they they think that they're doing the best. They try to operate, or at least they should if they have integrity, having the congregation best interests in mind. In fact, uh, the author of Hebrews is very clear about this matter of trusting and obeying. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As Christians, we are to trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I believe that humility is the handmaiden to obedience. And I think pride is the handmaiden to disobedience. I mean, think about this. It would have taken extreme discipline. Extreme discipline and humility on the part of Peter, James, and John not to descend from that mountain and go tell the other apostles, look what we saw that you did not see. But they didn't do that. In fact, Mark tells us they kept the matter to themselves, but Luke 9.36 says they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen thoroughly obedient to our lord they're revealing that they are true believers even if their theology is not perfect and such as a reminder to us we don't always have to tell everyone what we know you know sometimes more is said about who we are and what we choose not to say in certain circumstances Proverbs 17.27 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. You want to know a wise man, a smart man, a man of understanding? One who doesn't think they have to give their opinions on every single thing. The apostles are growing in their maturity because even what they know more and better than anyone else, they're trusting in Jesus, that they're not ready to say it and others aren't ready to hear it. And though they trust in Jesus, what I want you to see in verse 10 is that they still have some qualms or we could say misgivings about how all of this would work out. If he would rise from the dead, as Jesus told them in verse 9, then this meant he would have to die. And this brings them right back to their conundrum that they don't want Jesus to suffer. And Mark is not shy about pointing that out. Notice in verse 10, although they kept the matter to themselves, they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
Now, in verse 11, they're actually going to ask Jesus about it. But here in verse 10, what I think is happening is some sort of conference among themselves. Maybe even internally. But more than likely, a conference among themselves. Peter, what did Jesus mean regarding resurrection? Hey, hey John, do you think he's talking about the resurrection of all at the end of history? I mean, James, do you have any idea? What do you think about this? If he speaks of his own resurrection, then why is he placing so much emphasis on his suffering and death? Why is he going to die if he's just going to be raised from the dead again? They are very confused about what Jesus is saying. They have these qualms or misgivings. Now, it's not because they question the validity of resurrection. The Old Testament spoke about a general resurrection, couple of verses, Job 19, Job says, After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Or Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So they're not doubting the idea of a resurrection, but how does Jesus' resurrection fit with the general resurrection at the end? Are we at the end because Jesus is going to be raised? Is everyone else going to be raised? Or is Jesus going to be raised? And I mean, what is going on here? They're struggling. They have some qualms or misgivings because in the Jewish mindset, the resurrection meant the end of the world. The end of time as they knew it, right before the final judgment. Their qualm is not with Jesus' words that, the Son of Man must be raised. This isn't a rebellious questioning, like Peter rebuking Jesus earlier. No, this is a conversation where they have qualms about Jesus' insistence on death and resurrection, how this is associated with the end times. Now, questioning the fine points of theology can cause a headache from time to time, so I can resonate here with the disciples. They're engaging in these questions regarding their misgivings, their qualms. But I think this is akin, their questioning, to the type of pondering that Mary, the mother of our Lord, did. You remember the shepherds saw the multitude of the heavenly host and they said, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus was born lying in the major. They go to see Jesus. The shepherds tell Mary, what they saw and heard from the angels. And the text says that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Or if you like, when Jesus' parents accidentally left him in the temple and they found him, boy, where have you been? Don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? And Luke records for us that Jesus went home and submitted himself to his parents and yet again scripture records his mother treasured up all these things in her heart they are pondering and questioning how Jesus's theology can match the theology of the Old Testament the reason these qualms had to be put to rest in their minds with such urgency is because listen to this Jesus was clear they would speak about these things after the resurrection 
which meant that his death and resurrection was imminent and would occur in their lifetimes. They are struggling with the fact that Jesus will not be with them much longer. Now, this is no longer theology class about the idea of Jesus dying. No, Jesus is going to die, and he's going to die in their lifetimes, and they're going to have to deal with how this relates to the kingdom of God. What are they going to tell the rest of the followers of Christ? Now Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. Now they are humble enough to listen. Indeed, later we read that 40 days in between his resurrection and ascension, Jesus had to explain more to them. You remember in Acts chapter 1, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of God? And Jesus, this is not the time to discuss that. It's not the time for you to know that. Even at that point, they're grappling with how Jesus' earthly kingdom had not yet been set up. This is eschatology. When is a supposed earthly kingdom going to be set up? I think also they had on their minds Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2, especially after Jesus was raised from the dead. And you have the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God being poured out because in Ezekiel 36 and Joel chapter 2, those were passages connected with the end times. But they would work through their theology and acts because they were humble enough to receive instruction from Jesus here. They're wrestling with the nature of Christ's death and resurrection and what the nature of his kingdom will be when it appears and what role they will play in it. What do they tell the church? What do they tell the followers of Christ after he is raised from the dead? Is he ruling? Is he reigning? Is his kingdom here or is it not here? That's what they're dealing with. And we know that the apostles along with the prophets of the Old Testament serve as the foundation of the church We've yet to experience the glorious consummation of Christ's kingdom. And perhaps we're even still in the infancy of the church. Because after all, if you think about it, all the thousands of years that Old Testament scripture was written pointing to the coming of Christ, the church was there, but the church was in embryonic form. The church wasn't actually birthed until the day of Pentecost. Perhaps we're still in the infancy of the church. Remember, the kingdom will take time to grow. That's what Jesus said. It's like yeast. It's like yeast. The apostles are the foundation of the church along with the Old Testament prophets. But here's the point. There can be no kingdom apart from a crucified, resurrected, and ascended Christ. And the Old Testament, listen to this, simply did not clarify exactly what that meant. You remember back in verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. No more Elijah, no more Moses, but Jesus. Jesus would exegete to them the nature of the kingdom and end times. And now they're ready to listen. Remember the father said, this is my son, listen to him. So they don't just ponder these things in their hearts. They go directly to Jesus. And that moves us from the quiet insisted verse 9 and the qualms indicated verse 10 to verse 11, the queries investigated. The queries investigated. They just come right out to Jesus, verse 11, and they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? Now, of course, Elijah is on his mind because they just met Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had just predicted his resurrection, which meant his death was imminent. 
So in their minds, understanding the Old Testament, having Elijah on their mind, understanding Messianic prophecies, they ask, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? That was really asking, Jesus, why do the scribes constantly assert in their teaching that Elijah must come before the Messiah comes? You say you're the Messiah, where is Elijah? How can Jesus be the Messiah, set up his kingdom, when Elijah hasn't come? How could Jesus be the Messiah and die when Elijah hasn't descended from heaven in his second coming as prophesied in the Old Testament? By the way, this is an excellent question. They are not challenging Jesus' authority They're seeking answers genuinely. You see, there's a right way to ask a question and a wrong way to ask a question. And I've learned this in the ministry. Some questions I get are a challenge because the person asking it doesn't agree with me. So they're asking it in such a way to challenge me, which is fine. I can take that. But then there are other questions that are far more refreshing because it's a question that is asked to me because someone is humble And they really want to get to the truth of the matter. This is that sort of question. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, let's consider what text they had on their mind. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Last book in the Bible, last prophecy in the Bible, Malachi chapter 3. Why are they mentioning Elijah? Well, they just saw him. They were familiar with Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. There would come a messenger who would prepare the way before the Lord. Because then it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. They mention Elijah because they had just seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. It calls them to think about this prophecy. It calls them to think about the end times because Jesus is speaking about the resurrection. And notice with me in Malachi 4, verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. Huh, who else did they see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses. They had this prophecy in their minds. Malachi 3, the last prophecy of the Old Testament. They had just seen Elijah. They had just seen Moses. What does Malachi say? Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, when? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before the day of judgment. Verse 6, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Their query here in verse 11 is investigating how these prophecies mesh with Jesus' insistence that he is the Messiah, that he is going to die. How can you die when Elijah hasn't even come? Now remember back in 828, some posited that Jesus, that John the Baptist that Jesus was John the Baptist, and others say, verse 28, Elijah, or one of the prophets. That was a wrong position to have, but you can understand why people would have it, because there were a lot of similarities between Jesus and John the Baptist and Elijah. 
Both were powerful preachers of truth and repentance. They both preached with authority. It was not the boring, dry lectures of the Pharisees that just read their notes. It was powerful preaching. But they were wrong. Jesus wasn't Elijah. So the nature of this question is, why do the scribes assert Elijah must come first? Well, the Bible did teach that. In fact, they might have, might have had Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4 on their minds. A voice cries, Isaiah says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and him be made low. It was believed, and rightly so, that the messenger was Elijah, and that he would come before the Lord. It was believed by the scribes, it was taught by the scribes, that before the day of the Lord, including the final judgment of the wicked and the establishment of the Messianic kingdom, Elijah the forerunner would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Just like in ancient times, kings were preceded by heralds or forerunners who made sure everything was prepared for the arrival of the monarch. And at this point, the disciples' theology is spot on. And... Surprisingly enough, the scribes were right. Elijah must come first, as we'll see. But immediately following the answer that Jesus is going to give them, he raises another question. So this takes us now to verse 12. We've seen the quiet insisted, verse 9. The qualms indicated, verse 10. The queries about such matters investigated, verse 11. Now notice verse 12, the quiz issued. You're going to ask me a question. Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And the beginning of verse 12 first provides the answer Jesus gave. He says, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now, before he quizzes them, he gives them an answer. They were right. So were the scribes. Elijah must come before the Messiah did. And when he does, Jesus adds, he will restore all things, which is a proper interpretation of Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. What does it mean that he would restore all things? Well, it simply meant that Elijah, listen to this, would preach to the people calling for their repentance and that there would be a remnant in Israel that would believe and escape the judgment. So Jesus says, yeah, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And can you just imagine now the tailspin of confusion in the disciples' minds? This did not alleviate their qualms, it added to it. Jesus indeed was confirming the scribes were right. Jesus indeed was confirming that Elijah had come. How? Well, Jesus knows they're asking this and they're trying to get to their point. But in order to help them, Jesus quizzes them. Notice verse 12, the end of it. Jesus says, yes, Elijah must come and restore all things, but how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, he's saying you're asking the wrong question. Let's put aside the issue of Elijah for a moment because the scribes are not wrong in what they taught insofar as it went. They were wrong, however, in where they looked. Let's talk about the Son of Man. Let's talk about the suffering of the Son of Man. 
Why does he have to be treated with contempt? You're right insofar as it goes. Elijah must come first, but you need to look at other scriptures to understand your theology, and primarily, you need to look at who Christ is in order to understand that. Now, I love this because Jesus says, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus doesn't give a a, a passage of Scripture here. He just says it is written. It's kind of like what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 when when he speaks about um, the resurrection, the glorious passage. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He doesn't give a scripture in verse. He just says the Bible from cover to cover teaches this in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're worried about when Elijah came, you need to be concerned about what I just told you, that I must suffer. The whole Bible of the Old Testament has spoken about this. How have you missed it? You've missed it. Scripture's taught this. And Jesus demands the disciples deal with this. So he asked them how he could possibly be the Messiah if he doesn't suffer. That's the nature of the question. That's the nature of the quiz. You want to talk about Elijah? Fine. Yeah, he comes first. He restores all things. But you need to understand who I am. How can the Messiah come if Elijah hasn't come? That's the wrong question. The right question is, How can the Messiah be the Messiah if he doesn't suffer? That's what the whole Bible predicted. The whole Bible predicted it. Where did the Bible predict this? Well, to begin with, Psalm chapter 22. Turn there with me. You know it well. Scripture is so clear on this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted. You delivered them. What does he say in verse 6? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you who... Are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's womb. On you I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs encompass me. A company of evil evildoers encircles me they pierced my hands and feet I can count all my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them on and on this is the suffering of our Lord the psalmist speaking about his own experience prophesying the experience of our Lord and many other passages Psalm chapter 69 and verse 8 I've become a stranger to my brothers an alien to my mother's sons even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting it became my reproach says Psalm 69 Psalm 69 verse 20 reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair I looked for pity but there was none for comforters but I found none They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. It's exactly 
what they did to Jesus upon the cross. The Psalms filled with the suffering of Christ. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What about Isaiah 53? He was pierced for our transgressions. The lamb being led to the slaughter. He suffered for us a man of sorrows with grief. Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn. I mean, all of these verses in the Old Testament, the more important question was finding out why he had to suffer, not why Elijah came first. Jesus had taught, as you well know, that the arrival of his kingdom had come. Back in chapter 1, In verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. But how can his kingdom be here if he's going to turn around and die? And further, how could all these things really be a restoration of things? Where is Elijah? And still further, when Elijah came and restored all things, people repented, the ungodly were judged. They were the ones cast into hell. So why does Jesus have to die, especially if he's going to be raised again from the dead? All of these thoughts going on in their minds. Now this should not cause us to doubt the perspicuity of Scripture. You know what that means? The clarity of Scripture. Nor should it cause us to doubt the authority of Scripture. But I do want to tell you, God has spoken clearly on these things, but there is a reason that he has called teachers to the church. That's why the office of pastor is often referred to as pastor-teacher. Ephesians 4.11 refers to it as that. A pastor is the teacher of the church, and that's why Calvin and the Reformers wore gowns when they preached the word of God. Those were their academic robes. They wanted to communicate to the church that they were the doctors of the church. They were against vestments. The robes were not vestments. They represented the fact that they were teachers of the church because the Bible says that we are to have our minds renewed. Jesus was a preacher. By the way, preaching gowns are optional. But um, because in the Reformed tradition, not all Reformers wore robes. But what is not optional is that a pastor has a responsibility to be a teacher. That is why the church is fundamentally a school for the soul. That is why the preaching of the word of God is preeminent above everything in the church. The Reformation was about teaching and learning. Remember Jesus said in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. So don't have doubts this morning. It's not that the scriptures need fixed. It's that our theology from time to time needs fixed. Sometimes our theology is broken and that's why we need the week in and week out exposition of the word of God to help us understand truth. So goes the pulpit, so goes the people. And it is the pulpit that is to be the main mechanism whereby the word of God is taught. Sure, the word of God can be taught in Sunday school. But in Sunday school, there is no preaching. 
In preaching, there is teaching, but there's also preaching and exhortation. Calling people, demanding people, persuading people to believe the Word of God and elucidating and clarifying what the Word of God teaches. This is why we are a confessional church. Being confessional is not a point of pride, it's a point of humility to say we don't want to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to sit in that study week in and week out and try to think up new things to tell you, to get you to come back. I understand that this word of God is the living word of God. This word of God is authoritative. This word of God is clear. This word of God is sufficient. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout history when it's been orthodox has interpreted the word of God not according to the the fancies of what people think up in their mind and the imagination of their hearts. They follow the orthodox teaching of the creeds and the confessions because the creeds and confessions help elucidate the meaning of scripture. And you will never grow in your theology, if you're not willing, like the disciples, to ask questions, to ask important questions, but also to be humble enough to place yourself under other teachers, whether that's teachers in the past or teachers in the present. See, this is a turning point for the disciples. This is a different attitude than they've normally had. They're admitting their confusion. No more pride. And so Jesus, the preacher, is going to give them greater clarity. We move from verse 9, the qualms indicated, verse 10, I'm sorry, the the quiet insisted, verse 9, verse 10, the qualms indicated, verse 11, the queries investigated, verse 12, the quiz issued, now verse 13, to the quest intended. Now notice verse 13. Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is affirming that Elijah has come. Jesus is affirming that he himself must suffer, be raised from the dead, that the kingdom has appeared. And the apostles are thinking, this is not as glorious as when we were up on that mountain. You're talking about your death. Now we know you're serious. Now you're saying Elijah has come. You're saying the kingdom is here. They're confused. But I tell you, Elijah has come. Jesus, in verse 13, is pressing home to be adamant about the fact that he will pursue suffering, he will pursue the cross, but he uses Elijah as an example of that. And he begins by saying, I tell you, Elijah has come. Now that would have struck more confusion in their minds, and guess what? It would have also revealed that their eschatology was wrong. Because they didn't think Elijah had come. They should have known better. They should have known this. Elijah came and went, as verse 13 says, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now Matthew 17 provides some clarity to this. If you just flip over there quickly, Matthew 17, this parallel account. Verse 9 says, they're coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision till the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? And he answered them, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Now notice this verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. 
And they didn't recognize him, but they did him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And verse 13, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. It wasn't until that point that they understood that. Now Mark doesn't tell us that John the Baptist was Elijah, but that's because Matthew wrote his gospel first and the readers of of Mark were familiar with Matthew. They would have understood that. Jesus had had earlier alluded to the fact that John the Baptist was Elijah. Earlier in his ministry, when he talked about John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But that went over their head. They didn't see it. Jesus is saying here in verse 13, the religious leaders plotted against John, that's Elijah, They plotted against him through Herodias. Remember Herod Antipas, his wife? And Herod Antipas killed him. That was back in Mark chapter 6. They did to him, Jesus says, what they pleased. They did to him what they pleased. He came and he went. Luke 1.17 says that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That was announced at his birth. Jesus is saying to them, What happened after the transfiguration? You were left with Jesus only. And I am here with you. Elijah and Moses are gone. Everything they said pointed to me. You were to listen to me. And I'm telling you right now, you need help understanding the Old Testament. You don't understand the Old Testament. Elijah has come. Your eschatology is wrong. You think there's going to be a literal kingdom when the Messiah comes, and that's not going to happen. He must be crucified. He must be raised from the dead. He ascends to the right hand to rule and to reign. His consummated kingdom will come later. Now, the Jews believed that when Elijah came, he would restore all things. So what is this all about? Jesus said that earlier in verse 12, that when he comes, he would restore all things. Well, that is what happened with the ministry of John the Baptist. He preached repentance that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And then as the forerunner to the Messiah, the second coming of Elijah, he anointed Jesus with water into the ministry through his baptism. And what did we hear on that occasion? Well, the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, indicating this is the arrival of the Messiah. The Elijah figure has come in John the Baptist. And of course, now we know that When the Bible predicted that Elijah would come again, it wasn't a reincarnation of Elijah. What this means, and you need to hear this very carefully, is that a literal interpretation of the identity of Elijah as taught by Jesus means that originally in the Old Testament, when the Scriptures promised the coming back of Elijah, it was a spiritual and analogous meaning. It was typology. Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. Just like Jezebel was a type of Herodias who asked for the head of John the Baptist. Jezebel tried to kill Elijah. Herodias succeeded in killing the second Elijah, John the Baptist. Now I'll confess to you, typology is only a legitimate means of interpreting Scripture For one reason, if Jesus holds the typology. And guess what? He does. That's what he's saying here in verse 13. 
that John fulfilled the shadow of Elijah. He preached repentance. He turned many to the Messiah. They were baptized by John. They were looking forward to the Messiah. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And many believed in that. That was the remnant of Israel coming under the preaching of the second coming of Elijah. John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. But there's more here to what Jesus is saying. Notice verse 13 again. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah says that the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant. They've thrown down the altars. They've killed the prophets with the sword. And even I, I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Jezebel. But what happened? We read it earlier in our public reading of Scripture. Elijah was whisked away in glory through a whirlwind. Taken by a chariot of fire with horses of fire. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's as if that very event, Elijah was saying, I'm not going to die now, even though they're taking my life. I'm being whisked up in glory. They want to kill me. They won't kill me. But I'm coming again. And when I come, they will get me. And they did. They took off John the Baptist's head, the second Elijah. The event itself of Elijah being taken up into glory was a prophecy that eventually the second Elijah, when he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, would be martyred. He would suffer. And that's why Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased. Jezebel didn't get to murder Elijah, but Herodias murdered John the Baptist. They did to him whatever they pleased. And it was written of him that way. This is what the Bible prophesied. It's what the Bible predicted, and you all missed it. You didn't see it. Your eschatology was wrong. You didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. And in all this talk about typology, you might say to yourself, well, that sounds very fancy, Pastor Andrew, but that sounds like a coincidence to me. Are you a Calvinist? Then you believe there's no such thing as coincidence. This is providence. This is the way God wrote his word. It's the way he put it together. Do you realize the depth and the detail by which God writes to us in the Old Testament is such an extreme that you see Christ on every page of Scripture? If you look for him, you'll see him. And Jesus points this out because of his own suffering. He says, they did to him whatever they pleased. Notice this phrase again, as it is written of him. It's used again, verse 12, as it is written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And it was written of Elijah, verse 13, they'll do whatever they pleased. I think Jesus is doubling down here in verse 13. He's using Elijah's suffering as an illustration of the fact that he too must be rejected like John the Baptist, he too must be murdered, and this is what was written in the Bible. But not to worry. The kingdom of God would come. He would be raised from the dead. Victories would, victory would be ours through him as it is written. That there is no glory apart from suffering. That's back to our main theme that we began looking at as we've been going through Mark's gospel the last couple of weeks. That Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if he wouldn't have done that, then verse 9 of Philippians 2 would not be in your Bibles. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There is no exaltation apart from humiliation. There is no glory apart from suffering. So Jesus, when he speaks about the resurrection in this passage, he's not speaking about the resurrection at the end of history. He's speaking about the one within history, the resurrection of Christ, which is the beginning of a new age. It's the beginning of a new covenant where a new race of men and women would be created anew through the gospel and bow to the name of Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning over all things. And Jesus would not let anyone, not even the apostles, prevent him from his quest to die and to suffer because that was the only means to atone for the sins of his people. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts chapter 2, as Peter says. Now what does all this mean? As we close, I want to give you just three simple points of application. Focusing in on that phrase, it is written of him. That is an Old Testament phrase as it is written as it is written of him as we study our bibles we need to do three things number one we need to adopt a proper interpretation we need to adopt a proper interpretation jesus only was left with the apostles and jesus only exegeted to them the new testament scriptures you need the new testament to understand the old testament and i'm not just talking about the so-called red letters Talking about all the New Testament. To help us understand the prophecies of how the Old Testament is fulfilled. And the context of the Old Testament matters. We need to understand the original authors and what they meant, who the original readers were. But there is also a context of the entire canon of Scripture which takes into account the fact that what was written earlier was written for our instruction. Romans 15 verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And when we have a proper interpretation, we see Christ as the central storyline of the Bible, we have that hope that Jesus came to die for the sins of his one people, to be raised to ascend and to rule and to reign. And the New Testament helps us see that the types and the shadows of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, oftentimes this will come through the interpretive mechanism of typology. That there are types and shadows in the Old Testament that point forward to Christ, a Christ-centered hermeneutic, not focusing on a people, Israel, but focusing on a person, Christ. And by focusing on Christ and by listening to him, even as the Father has commanded us, we can understand the Old Testament better. And by understanding the Old Testament, we can understand what happens at the end of the world better. Such as Elijah has already come. We're already in the last days. The kingdom is already here. Christ is ruling and reigning. Victory has already been secured. That's the gospel. And you don't get there without a proper interpretation of Scripture. So number one, adopt a proper interpretation. Number two, adhere to a powerful illumination. As I said, 
the disciples were too influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees and that resulted in a misinterpretation of Scripture and a misapplication of Scripture. They needed the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to understand the Bible. That is why Jesus promised the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost so that he would recall to their memory all the things he taught them so they could illuminate the church. And on that Emmaus road, Jesus appears to the disciples and explains to them the word of God. He explains to them how all of the Old Testament spoke of him. They needed that illumination. The study of Scripture, and this is very important to understand, is not a raw academic pursuit for the mind alone. You cannot understand the Scriptures apart from the the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And when you, with Bible in your hand, and when you, with hands clasped, to pray to God, help me understand this, because as a Christian you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you will be able to say with the other disciples on the Emmaus Road, did not our hearts burn within us as he taught us? Christ teaches you through the Holy Spirit. This is not a raw academic thing that we're doing this morning. I hope you understand that. We've talked about Greek, we've talked about theology, we've talked about eschatology. But in all of that, don't miss Christ. In all of that, don't misunderstand. This is some sort of mind exercise apart from the heart. That if you truly believe in Christ, if Christ has truly grabbed your heart, you will be a follower of him. You will not only understand the scriptures in your mind, you'll understand in your heart what it means to be a follower of Christ. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be a Christian to understand the Bible. Some people don't understand the Bible and the issue is they need illumination. Some people don't understand the Bible because the issue is they need regeneration. They're not born again. They're not in the kingdom of God. They can't see the kingdom of God because the veil is still over their eyes. They've not seen God in the face of Christ. And if that's you this morning, beg God to reveal Christ to you because God does not turn away one of his children. All of those God has chosen, if they come to him, he will in no wise cast out. You can be sure of your election if you run to Jesus this morning. And that doesn't mean running down the aisle. That means running to him in your heart, confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, bowing to him in total allegiance and submission. He'll save you. He will forgive you. He will indwell you with the Holy Spirit and you will finally understand your Bible. And you'll finally understand what life is all about. You need to adopt proper interpretation of Scripture. You need to adhere to a powerful illumination of the Holy Spirit. Number three, you need to attempt a persistent investigation of the Word of God. Anything worth anything in life will take work, and that includes the study of His Word. You want to be more holy? Study His Word more. You want to understand truth better? Study His Word more. Being prayerful? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law and also being persistent. I love, I absolutely love one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Has God given to the church pastor teachers? Yes. Are those necessary? Yes. And other elders necessary? Of course but you have a responsibility and dwelt by the Holy Spirit to study the word of God. And we have the promise of Jesus here. When we adopt a proper interpretation 
and by the Spirit's enabling, adhere to a powerful illumination, and we attempt a persistent investigation of the Scriptures, we may be surprised how much God reveals to us about himself. We all, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, beholding the glory of God are being changed into his image from one glory to the next. We have through the gospel seen God in the face of Christ. Christ speaks to us through his word to change us, to illuminate us, to make us understand him better. Do you realize God loves you so much that he gave to you a book of his words not to be shut and put aside but to take the word just as the apostles did and to seize it to hold it in their possession to hold his word in their hearts that's a true disciple and now we see these disciples revealing the validity of their faith They're obeying Jesus, they're seeking Jesus and because of that, Jesus will use them. He will use them like he never used any other people in the history of the world to be the very foundation of the church. Such should encourage our hearts as we study God's word because what Jesus revealed to the apostles on that day is exactly what he reveals to us every time we open up his word, to hear it preached or to study it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for such deep, penetrating truths. Lord, our time this morning has been long. But Lord, we trust that even in these five verses and five points, you have revealed enough for us to go home and chew upon and meditate upon. Lord, we pray that as we digest your truth, that your blessed Holy Spirit would illuminate your word for us. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the clarity of your word, the privilege of being able to expound your word and to worship you. Father, we know that you have all the answers to all of our questions. Help us to be more prayerful. Help us to be more vigilant students of your word, to understand you better, to understand your will for our lives so that we may honor you as you call us to honor you. Thank you for our time of worship. Lord, as we close it out now with this this hymn of response, may it be a prayer to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.